0: Everyone had a good weekend so far? (laughs) Where are we? we Sunday morning, 10 a.m. service. You know, we're going to have a great time together as we continue in our series on party theology. Now, who was here last week when we got this thing going? We're well, good, right? Great message from Dean. And, uh, and I love this idea that there's something so profound in this idea of what does it mean for us as a, a people of faith to engage with this idea of how is our joy, is our capacity to experience life with this attitude of like a, a party connected to the way we see God and the way we see ourselves connecting with who God is. You know, some of the pictures that we've drawn on that kind of gave gave rise to this idea of party theology is when you think of the life that Jesus lived and how often Jesus will take the picture of a party, something like a feast or a celebration or a, or a wedding, and then he'll use that very picture to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Then there's something about this picture of a moment of joy expressed in community that is at the very heart of what God is. God's kingdom is like, and we see that in the life of Jesus. We see that that throughout his public ministry, he finds himself in these kind of spaces. He's at meals, he's at dinners, he's at weddings, and there's something so central to who Jesus is in this idea of being present and bringing joy in an expression of partying in community. You know, something that I think is so notable about who Jesus is, something so notable about our savior, is that the way that he first reveals himself as our Messiah is by turning water into wine at the context of a wedding celebration. Don't you think there's something notable about that that the way Jesus first reveals his messianic identity is by hanging out at a wedding? And turning water into wine. You know, I think there's something in that. And uh, and that particular passage from John chapter 2 is what we're going to get into this morning, and I'm looking forward to this. this is a great text to spend some time with. And it's a fun starting point, right? Jesus turning water into wine. You know, as we, we get into that, I, I'd love to pray for us as we approach God's Word. And, and also, by the way, if we haven't met, my name's Phil. I'm part of the team here. We're going to have a lot of fun together as we uh, get into Scripture. So let me pray. God, we just want to give this time over to you, Lord. God, I pray that you would be present in this conversation, Lord, that, that, Lord, you'd speak through your Scripture, Father God. And I pray that for each one of us, we could, you know, really just get a heart, a soul into what you might be communicating through your Word this morning. Amen. All right, well, we're going to start in John chapter 2, and we're going to get that up on the screens. And here we go in verses 1 to 3. Now, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Can someone say no more wine? No more wine. So here's the, the central problem of this passage of scripture. Here's the tension that we find in this text. There is no more wine. All the wine's gone. You know, I, I love this. And what you can kind of uh, infer from Jesus's presence even at this wedding is that he's not there in some official capacity as a, as a teacher or a rabbi. He's not there to marry this couple. The fact that his mother's there, we can kind of say, this is probably a relation of Jesus. He's just there to party and celebrate as this husband and wife uh, join their, start their journey of marriage together. But then in the context of that, the wine runs out and that's a bit of a social faux pas. Now, if we translate this exact moment into our kind of experience with parties, it might be a bit like a moment where at a, like a, a birthday party or a wedding reception or something like that and the food or the drinks runs out. Anyone experienced that before? There's not enough food to go around at a party. There's not enough drinks to go around. And It's just kind of like a mood killer, right? It's like a bit like, oh, this wasn't the best. You know, my, my own wedding reception, I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong times as food was coming out. And I literally ate nothing like the whole day from about 10.30 all the way through till about 10.30 when our wedding reception ended. And I, I got to the, towards the end of the night and I was like, wait, there's no more food coming out? Like, I haven't eaten anything, I'm so hungry right now. And I had a really important decision to make. Leaving that reception and driving to the hotel before we went and started our honeymoon, I was driving and I smelt a particular flame-grilled aroma. You know that Hungry Jack smell? I'm convinced they put something in something to make that smell come to life. And I smelled that smell and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. And I had a key decision to make. Do I take my brand new wife through the drive-through of Hungry Jack's on the way to our honeymoon suite? Now, keeping in mind, at the time, my wife, and still to this day, is a health teacher. So she's, you know, she's pretty conscientious about eating good, good whole foods. I'm like oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. I've got to make a decision right here. How am I even going to phrase this? There's this internal dialogue going on in my mind. Do I just do it and and explain myself later? Do I offer it as an idea? And I decided just to push through and go straight, straight to the hotel. Who thinks that was a good move? I, yeah, I see some men, well played, Phil, just taking one for the team. And, of course, we got to do other, other good things at the hotel later. Uh, but, but I so decided to, to go right through. But we've all kind of had this kind of experience at a party like that where there's not enough of food or wine. It's kind of this like, you know, this isn't great. This isn't great. We need a bit more. Now, in the world that Jesus lived, this was an entirely different moment. So Jesus is at a wedding celebration. Now, for us, we've got a picture of a reception that follows after a ceremony, and it's contained to a few hours in an afternoon or an evening. Now, for Jesus, more often than not, these wedding celebrations became like week-long feasts as different family members and guests would travel from the surrounding regions, and they'd arrive on different days to continue that celebration. So it was just an astronomical expense for the hosts of those weddings. Any parents here put on a a wedding for a child? And parents, I've heard it's like a, a really inexpensive process. It's like, you know, just, just I'm, I'm kidding. I know there's a lot that goes into it. But, but imagine that reception. Imagine spreading that over an entire week of feasting and celebrating and being joyful. Now, the wine at these kind of weddings was a key symbol of the joy that was captured in that event. So it would actually be a bit more like this. I want you to imagine Christmas morning. And imagine it's Christmas morning, but there's no tree, there's no lights, there's no presents. And they're key symbols of what we understand Christmas to be. Now, that was what the wine was like at the wedding celebration in the world that Jesus lived. It was a key symbol of the joy of that occasion. And if there was no more wine, it was almost as if the, the, the key kind of identity of that occasion was missing, So what would tend to happen when the wine ran out? It was almost like an indicator of the guests that have arrived. Okay, it's time for the party to wind down. We've had a good run here. We've had a few days, a few days of celebration, but the wine's gone, and the wine's the key symbol of the joy of this experience, and that's run out. So it's time to to give our final words of blessing to the couple and, and head home. So running low on wine was kind of like running low on joy in those moments. Now, here's what I want to take a break from the passage and the picture that we see here to talk about who we are as the people of faith. You know, I've been thinking a little bit over the last couple of weeks how people not of faith actually think about my Christianity. You know, I get the opportunity to have all kinds of fun conversations with people that I meet and they discover that, that, I, that I'm a Christian or that I have a faith as a, as a key part of my life. And almost always when I'm having conversations with people, There's a couple of things that they identify about who I am as a Christian. And really, what they're saying is, this is how I see your faith. Now, the first thing that always comes up oh, you're a Christian. Oh, so you believe in God. You believe in God. So they recognize that if you're a person of faith, there is a belief element attached to who you are and what faith looks like. Like, oh, okay, you're one of those guys that believes in God. Cool. Anyone had a conversation a little bit like that? Okay, you believe in God. And then almost always, the next thing that comes out is some variation of, okay, and then that means there's some things that you don't do, right? Like, oh, okay, you believe in God and you're a Christian. So, so that means you, you don't get drunk. That means that you don't have sex until you get married. Or that means you don't do this or you don't do that. And what they're actually identifying and what they are creating in their mind is a picture of what faith is that is all about beliefs. And prohibitive behaviors. You know what that picture is? It's a picture of faith that's running low on joy. It's a picture of faith that's running low on the true joy of what relationship with God through Christ is all about. And we're going to work on that as we think about this idea of party theology. They're moving from a place of running low on joy to being a people that carry the joy of Christ as a primary expression of what it means to be the people of faith. Okay, we're going to jump back into the the text here. So we'll pick up in, where are we up to? Verse 4. That sounds appropriate. And so Jesus replies to his mother. She's brought this this problem. Jesus, we're running on wine. You've got to do something. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? And real quick, this is a a term of endearment here. It translates into into our English as kind of like a little bit derogatory, but that's not what's going on here. It says, woman... Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Actually, something fun you can try for any, like, teenagers here or husbands that you're sleeping in and maybe your mum or your wife comes to you and say, hey, it's time to get out. We've got to get ready. We've got to go, go, go. This is a verse that you can actually try quoting and see how that works for you. <laughs> Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And maybe your wife will be so impressed you're quoting scripture and say, yep, yeah, you, you just chill out. I'll get this sorted. Or maybe your kids, you maybe your parents, would be so impressed they'd be like you have another hour of sleep, we can just make this work. Uh, do any ladies here? Do you think that's how it would play out if we tried to use this? Yeah, pro- probably not. <laughs> probably not. So can I counsel you and say, if you're learning scripture, great. Probably don't lo- don't learn this one for the purposes of getting out of things. <laughs> now, anyway, verse five. His mother said to the servants, "Do what." he tells you. You know, my imagination comes to life when I hear Jesus' mom say this. Remember, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's watched him grow up over the past 30 years or so. And I can only imagine the myriad of crazy things that Jesus has done that Mary has experienced as his mother. So it's almost like she's forwarding it. Okay, servants, Jesus is going to tell you to do something crazy. Let's just rip that band-aid right off. Whatever it is, do what he says. Then in verse 6, and this is a a key verse here. If you've got your Bibles open, highlight this in your reading because this is a key verse where John is going to give us some details that he wants us to understand is at the heart of this passage. So in verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So they had a particular function, and John wants us to know where this water's coming from. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, and combined, that's about 450 liters, so they're just giant stone jars. Now, let's think about these stone jars for a minute. I want to show you an image here from a a museum in modern-day Cana. Now, this is a a stone jar that's at a museum where they they believe was the the location of this ancient village where Jesus attended this wedding. In reality, it's one of three possible locations. But here's a a stone jar for ceremonial washing, which would have been like what Jesus is describing at this wedding occasion. So just big stone jars. Actually, just for for interest's sake, I want to show you something else here. So right next to this museum, there's a whole bunch of vineyards and wineries, and you can actually buy... The first miracle, Cana Wedding Wine. How good's that? I, I can only imagine that this is marketed primarily to American tourists going into the, the Holy Land. But, uh, I, you know, I can say that. Dean's at our Merrow campus. And actually, he's an Australian citizen, so he'd be laughing right with me. So I, and that's uh, nothing significant there. I just thought that was a humorous addition to this particular museum. Anyway, let's go back to the stone jars. So, so John wants us to know that, that this miracle of transformation of turning water to wine... The water comes from a place that we need to draw our attention to. And it comes to these stone jars. And John gives us the detail that it was the stone jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, what that was, was a uh, an aspect of the religious framework that they had as the people of God based on what had been passed down by Moses through the Old Testament and the framework of their faith through the Old Covenant. Now, what would happen is, as an aspect of this religious framework, they would, be, they would uh, through daily life, have experiences that would make them what they'd call ritually or ceremonially unclean. And these could be all kinds of experience, working with certain kinds of animals to... To getting in contact with certain kinds of things, to being sick in particular ways, having, you know, sores that were a little bit, you know, struggling to heal. There was just a myriad of things that could cause a Jewish person to be called what they would call ceremonially unclean. And if you're you're interested in all of that aspect of Old Testament uh, law, you can jump into Leviticus 15. Uh, I'll warn you, it's not particularly exciting reading, but if you want a bit more of that context, it emerges from that passage. So, they had all of these experiences that could make them ceremonially unclean, and and let's remember, they're living in an agrarian kind of society, they're working with animals, they're farming, and so probably, almost every day, they would find themselves in a position of ceremonial uncleanliness. Now, that meant two things. If I had an experience in my day uh, that made me ceremonially unclean, it would mean that, number one, it was not appropriate for me to be in community with others, and it would mean, number two, that it's not appropriate for me to be in community with God. So that my actions throughout the day, my behavior throughout the day has actually separated me from community and from God. Then what the waters of these stone jars would do, that as I washed in those waters, I'd wash my hands, my face, my beard, take some out to wash my feet. That through that process, I would be made ceremonially clean. And then through, through becoming ceremonially clean, then I had changed my behavior. I had done the things that I needed to do in order to be accepted into community, like a wedding celebration, and in order to be accepted into the presence of God, to be made good enough so that I could be accepted in community and in God's presence. So John wants us to know that the water that's about to be transformed into wine comes from the ceremonial stone Jars, Let that sink in for a moment. You know, we have probably all had experiences in life that, that cause us to think that we're not good enough to be a part of a particular community. I remember going back a few years as a, as a teenager. But actually, I might have been in my 20s at that time. It's 2004, I can do the math later, but I was invited to a particular wedding, to a, a wedding, uh, the ceremony, and then later the reception, and I decided, I'm not sure why, but I felt like it was an, a legitimate, formal fashion option at the time that I had, I went to this wedding, and I had a nice button-up shirt, that's, that's a good start early for a wedding, right, button-up shirt, so I had my nice button-up shirt. I think I actually had a suit jacket as well. So button-up shirt, suit jacket, so far so good. Everyone, we're on board with this as an appropriate fashion choice for a wedding. And then I even had nice dress pants. So I had dress pants, I had a nice belt, it was all tucked in. I, I, was, I thought I was looking pretty good. Then for some reason, at that particular time, I thought that it was an appropriate fashion option to complete that outfit with a pair of thongs. Now, I hold, I hold, I believe there was a, br- a brief window here in about 2004, about 2005, where people were doing this at formal occasions. Can anyone back me up on that? That was never a thing? Never. I, look, I, well, I went into this wedding convinced that this was a perfectly legit formal option. And you might predict that as I got to the, the wedding ceremony, I actually got cornered. By the grandma of the bride, maybe you know where this is going, and it was her point of view that my chosen footwear was not appropriate for the occasion, and, and actually like this is probably the most uncomfortable I've ever been. She just just kind of tore shreds off me for about five minutes in front of everyone until the bride kind of saved me. Feel coming. <laughs> Grandma, and, and, and I just had this experience where I was like, oh, I've clearly made a mistake. My behavior, my outfit right now has separated me from being accepted into this community. And you know what I did for the rest of the night? I sat under a table trying to kind of hide my feet and hide the fact that I was wearing thongs. Because I felt like I don't fit here. I've made a choice that has actually separated me from acceptance and from community. And so I just sat there trying to hide the fact that I'd made this bad decision. Now, the waters of purity were about having this acceptance that said, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy to be accepted into community, not worthy to be accepted into God's presence, so I need to do a series of things to make myself right before I can do that. And their framework was washing in the waters of ceremonial cleansing. Now, it's so significant that what Jesus is about to do happens in this space, and a symbol of the religious framework of the day that was all about belief and boundaries of behavior, a little bit how sometimes people can see the church and Christianity. Hold on to that thought, and we're going to go a little bit further in this text. And where are we up to here? Starting in... Yeah, here we go. So, Jesus said to the servants... Fill the jars with water, these great ceremonial stone jars. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And the inference being that that he was going to taste this water and it was going to be the replacement for the wine that had run out. Let's go a little bit further in the verses. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said this. Listen to these words. Can we get that next verse up? Thanks. Now, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, a little bit of just kind of insight into the master of the banquet's planning. But you have saved the best till now. Can someone say best till now? You saved, saved the very best wine until now. And verse 11, here we have it. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So for a moment, let's step into this wedding celebration at Cana. Now, everyone started to get word that all the wine's run out. Oh, have you heard the wine's running low? It oh, probably means it's time to, to wrap things up. Maybe, you know, it's time to, to wrap this party up. And then all of a sudden, the master of the banquet declares, there is new wine that is better than anything that has come before. And let's remember, remember the scale of abundance here. We're talking 450 odd liters of new wine that is better than anything that's come before. Imagine the lift and the change in that moment of celebration as people continue to be joyful with one another around this symbol of the abounding joy of that occasion. Imagine the change in that party. But that was just a glimpse, just a foreshadowing of what Jesus was really describing and declaring about who he is as the Messiah. Now, he's talking about a change in the waters. There's a literal change in the water of the stone jar as it miraculously is transformed into wine. But what Jesus is really declaring through this evidence of his glory is that there is a change in the waters of what faith is. There's a change in the waters that the old is gone, that the old framework of working to become good enough to be accepted by God, that's being swallowed up by the new wine of joy. That's being swallowed up by the new thing that Jesus is providing in abundance of wine, in abundance of joy. That the behavioral aspects as qualifiers for relationship with God are gone. And now it's simply about relationship with Jesus. There's a change in the waters that Jesus begins to communicate in this moment through this symbol, through this miracle that in a very symbol of what was, Jesus does a miracle of new wine and new joy, declaring that something new is coming into place in who I am as the Savior, a change in the waters. So let's take a moment to think about this picture of new wine. And as the the master of the banquet declares, you've saved the best till now, this abundance of new wine. Now, throughout Scripture and God's story, we see, we see this phrase, new wine, pop up pretty regularly throughout the Old Testament. The, the, the prophets of the Old Testament that declared that one day a Messiah would come to bring the fulfillment of what God had promised. Or in other contexts, that, that, that God will bring us out of exile for different periods of their history. And that almost always, when they prophesied a time of fulfillment of what God was doing, They would use the symbol of new wine to describe the joy of the fulfillment of God. Let me give you a few quick examples of this. We've got the first one here in Jeremiah, I think. Jeremiah, they will rejoice. They will be joyful. In the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And then in Joel, in that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. This picture of abundant new wine. And then again in Amos, new wine will drip from the mountains, flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. So this new wine is is often a picture that's given alongside a time of fulfillment. And expressed most centrally in God's word with the time of messianic fulfillment. That new wine, abounding new wine dripping from the mountains is going to be an accompaniment of the fulfillment of the Messiah that would come. So how incredible is it that the first way that Jesus reveals his glory is by bringing an abundance of wine at a wedding. New wine, abounding wine, a ridiculous quantity of wine that's better than anything that's come before Jesus is declaring that he is not only the provider of this new wine, but he is the new wine. That he is that new wine of joy. And that relationship with God is completely changed through who Jesus is. a symbol of the joy of messianic fulfillment. So this is where our story ends in this passage. But then the question becomes, as we consider, how does this shape our theology or the way that we think about God, the way we think about ourselves in relation to God, the way we think about ourselves as the people of God, and how do we actually live out of the new wine? How do we become people that live out of the new wine of that which Jesus has provided? So in this scripture, we see the two two kind of beverages, if you like, the waters of the stone jar that are then transformed into the new wine of joy. And I think even today, we as people of faith, in our own individual journeys of faith, we've got a decision to make. Do we live out of the stone, or do we live out of the wine of joy? Do we live out of a faith defined by the joy of who Jesus is and the relationship that we're invited to in Jesus? Or are we sometimes being drawn back to the stone? It's about beliefs, it's about my behaviors, it's about the boundaries or the disqualifiers of behavior. That's what faith is about. There's something in each one of us that sometimes can get drawn towards a stone expression of faith. But Jesus declares, the new thing that I'm doing is better than the old thing. You know, one of the things that I just find so humorous about this particular passage is that you imagine, and going back to Jesus' mother, Mary's words, he's going to do something crazy. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Now, imagine you're the servant drawing the water from the the stone the stone jars of the the ceremonial washing now here's a reality about these jars that they would have been set in an outer courtyard as the guests were arriving they'd go and observant Jews would go on there they'd wash themselves to be ceremonially clean before they entered into community now really what that means is is that there'd be you know, people that had the, the, the dirt of travel and dust and, and everything going on, they would go to these jars and they would wash. So it would be typical. They'd wash their hands over the jar. They'd wash their beards over the jar. All kinds of different bits and pieces might have fell, fallen into the jars of water. You see where I'm going with this? They, they'd draw water out. They'd wash their feet. The water would go back in. So the ceremonial jars, even though they symbolized purity, the, the waters themselves became actually pretty gross. <laughs> it was kind of like bath water at a certain point. Now, no one in the world that Jesus lived, unless they were maybe dying of thirst or something like that, would voluntarily drink from the waters of ceremonial purity. No one would drink from that. So then when, the, when Jesus tells the servants, draw the water from those jars, they would have been like, ew, gross. But Jesus' mom said, whatever he says to do, do it. And they take that water to the master of the bank, And of course, Jesus does a miracle of transformation, so everything's okay. You know, as I, as I reflected on this picture, I'm reminded uh, of my own, own kids. Anyone got a couple of boys in your household? Now, now, boys, they have a lot of fun throughout the day. And I love that. My kids are right into like dirt and running through dirt and throwing dirt everywhere. It kind of, it freaks me out a little bit, but I've just, you know, died to that part of myself so they can continue to throw dirt wherever they like. But when they get into the bath, after a few minutes, there's kind of this grayish hue as the day's play is washed away. Anyone experienced this in a bathtub before and you just like, whoa, you needed that bath. Now, something that broke a weird part of my soul was when my, one of my sons, I won't say which one, so you can't tease any of them. You guys wouldn't do that, would you? No, no. One of my sons, he would just put his head down and start drinking the bath water. And I tell you, there's a part of my insides that died as I watched him do that. I was like, you can't drink the bath water, that's so gross. How do you explain to a one-year-old why that's a really gross thing to do? It's like, Dad, this is a massive, you know massive cup of water i'm swimming and why not have a drink i'm feeling parched obviously he doesn't have that dialogue but, but he'd drink from this bath water and it would just like oh it would freak me out actually funny addition to this story he's a little bit older now he's like he's two but uh we, we were setting up for our men's barbecue last night and the the boys came with me as we were getting that sorted and i, I turned around and was you know putting a grill together or something like that look back and there he is he's found a mcdonald's cup out there somewhere, and he's sucking from the straw. And again, that same part of my soul, just like, no! It quickly ran out to it, smacked it out of his hands. (laughs) Never drink random bodies of water. It's kind of like, and he said, if it's a body of water, it's fair game, I'm gonna drink it whatever it is. My point is, there are certain beverages that are just really not appealing to think about drinking. The ceremonial waters were not a water that you wanted to drink from. You know, I think about this in how we carry our faith as the people of God. You know, a faith that's defined by prohibitive behaviors, boundaries of exclusion, and systems of belief is not appealing for anyone to drink from. It's not appealing. It's a picture of faith that's running low on joy. But what Jesus does, he says, that old way is being swallowed up by the new way. And it's no longer about what I have to do in order to be accepted into Christian community, in order to be accepted into relationship with God. I don't have to make a series of things right in my life before I can be accepted by who Jesus is. I just have to respond to an offer of friendship that Jesus brings to my life. And that is the new joy. That is the new one. And to live out of that expression of joy of who Jesus is. You know, our faith is transformed into something that people want to experience with the joy that we carry. Or to say it in another way, it's our joy that transforms our faith into something that, want, that, that others want to experience. You know, my, my hope, my prayer, is that when people discover who I am as a Christian, maybe who you are as a Christian, and then they ask some of these questions, oh, that means you've got belief and you don't do this or you don't do that. You know, my dream for who we are as a people of faith is that just randomly someone in our life would come up to us and say, I feel, i got a weird question. This might be a bit awkward. But do you believe in Jesus? Because I met this person once that believed in Jesus. And they just had this joy about them. And I see you've got it as well. Are you one of those people that believe in Jesus? You just feel like one of those people. I kind of just want to be around you. I feel just accepted around who you are. You know, that's my dream for what we would carry as the people of faith. That it wouldn't be this sense of, oh, that's what you are, that means this isn't this. Be a sense of, no, we wouldn't have to say that we're a Christian. People just get this feel there's something different about you. There's something different about you, Alan. And I think I've experienced it before, hey, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Because that's the kind of faith that's appealing that people actually want to drink from. And party theology is about this idea of how do we, in our journey of faith, live out of that new wine of joy and not out of the stone which Jesus died to swallow up. You know, we're going to sing a cool song together coming out of this message. I'm going to invite the team to come up and join us. And it's this song called New Wine, and it's about these pictures of who Jesus is and what, what Jesus can do through our lives. And, uh, and I thought it'd just be a great song to sing coming out of this passage and out of the challenge of this scripture this morning. And I want to encourage you this morning to take, and it's a phrase you might have heard before around churches or around people of faith, to live out of the joy of your salvation, to take a step towards the simple reality that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And that brings peace and joy to my life like nothing else. And to learn to carry that and to offer that to others. So that the first thing people see in you is the joy, love, and acceptance of Jesus. The behavioral boundaries are gone. Do you know that's what Jesus did upon the cross? Disqualifying behaviors for community are gone. The church is called to be a place of belonging, defined by an invitation to have friendship with Jesus. Can we stand together? And I'd love to pray for us as we lead into this song. Let me pray for you. God, I want to thank you that you gave your son so that faith could work in a whole new way in us, Lord. Jesus, I thank you that there are no righteous requirements on my life. There are no steps or rules that I need to follow. But Jesus, all we need to do is respond to that invitation of friendship with you. Jesus, I pray that you would take our souls deep in that reality of salvation. And Lord God, more and more can we be a people whose lives are shaped by the joy that we carry in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, would you help us as a church community to carry the joy acceptance, belonging, and amazing grace that you provided upon the cross. Lord, would we never get too caught up in the thinking of the stone? But Jesus, would we be overjoyed in the provision of the new wine that is in your name? We praise you, God. And God, I ask that your presence, your Holy Spirit would be speaking even in these moments of worship together. God, you're doing something new And God, I pray that that there would be new wine, new joy that we might live out of and through here today. We praise you, God. Let's sing that song together.